So this morning, if you have your Bibles, like I said, to open up to John chapter 2. Last week, we asked this question, when Jesus calls, will you answer? Will you answer? When Jesus calls, will you answer? And the thing is, is that we know that in this entire gospel, in this entire, we're going to be going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but John lays out what, it mean, uh, what this entire gospel is for, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he came to save us from ourselves, he came to save us from our sins, deliver us from our sins. That's that you may believe, that you may believe. So we answer that question, when Jesus calls, will you answer? And this week, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Some of us have that mindset that we're crossing a chasm like this. But God, if God tells you to do it, God tells you to jump, just do it. Amen? If he tells you to do it, just do it. It doesn't matter. A lot of people say we have a blind faith. We don't have a blind faith. God gives us enough so we can see the next step and the next step and the next step. It's not a blind faith. God tells us we know how this ends. If we remain faithful, if we endure to the end, we already know the promise that God has for us. It's not a blind faith. People say it's a blind faith. No, it's not. You may not necessarily see everything, but you're not blind in it. You're not blind in it. So, Tim, if you could play that and uh, read along with us in John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Chapter 2. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless your word. God, give us a hear that we would hear what you would have to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we hear about the wedding at Cana. We know, uh, you know there's a lot of things that go on, but there's some, maybe some of the things that we don't realize. Like, you know, uh, Let's look at verses 1 and 2. And the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus uh, was called and his disciples to the marriage. One of the things that we, could, uh, that we could possibly see from this, some commentators believe that this is a, a possibly a family wedding, that this is actually possibly the, the wedding of the Apostle John. 
since Jesus and John were cousins or, or half cousins, that Jesus, that this is the reason why this is a significant thing. So his first miracle happens at a family gathering. Jesus and his disciples are called. Jesus goes where he's invited. Does that make sense? Jesus goes where he's invited. We see many times in scripture where it says that he couldn't do any uh, miracles or he wasn't welcome. So what did he do? He left. He departed. Where Jesus is, Jesus goes where he is invited. Plain and simple. How many of you like to go to a place where you're not invited? Or people say, get out of here. Do you stay around and say, some of you might just out of defiance might sit there and say, I'm just going to stay here until they are just sick of me. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus just says, you know what? If I'm invited, I'm going to go. Verse 3. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. First of all, you know, for those with the question of, is drinking alcohol, is drinking all that kind of stuff okay? I'm going to answer that towards a little bit later on in this. But I'm going to want to continue with what this portion of Scripture says, and I'm going to answer, like I said, I will answer that later. In this culture, marriages, the marriage feast, lasted about seven to eight days. Seven to eight days. Can you imagine going to a wedding? Like, we have a hard enough time, you know, setting aside time on a Saturday afternoon or whatever it is for a few hours to celebrate a wedding. And there's going on for seven or eight days. I don't know about you, but that's, I don't know, that's a lot of cake. I, I just, I, I mean, that's just a lot of cake and a lot of different things. But they would have a wedding feast that lasted seven or eight days. And we know that Jesus is probably showing up a little bit towards the end because of, the, because of a comment that is made in verse 10 by the governor that says that you saved the good wine until now towards the end of it. So we know that he, he's coming towards the end of it. But here's the thing. There's also a question that's always brought up around Christmas time, and I'm not trying to ruin this song for you, but I am. All right? There's a song, Mary, Did You Know? That your baby people. And all you just started you know, singing that as you went through. Did she know? Yes. I'll just tell you that flat out, is that she did know. Because if... She would not have brought this up to Jesus if she did not think that he knew they have no wine. Why would she even say it if she didn't think that he could do it? So she knows. She knows that there's something special about her son, that there's something. She maybe didn't figure out, you know, figure that he's going to change water into wine. Maybe he was going to somehow have money and then they're going to go to the store. I don't know. But there's, she knows that there's something about Jesus. So she knows what God has spoken to her. She knows that Jesus can do something. She doesn't know what it is, but he's going to do something. Or else she would have not even have, have even said they have no wine. She would have said, oop, well, water it is for everybody. Verse 4. Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. This is not, a, this is not disrespectful, all right? I know that there's, there's times where you know, like, I, I tried to be funny with my wife, and I said, woman, and then she looked at me, and there was that holy indignation that came over her, and uh, so I said, well, I said, well, I meant it as a term of endearment. Jesus said, she goes, no, you don't, and she knew that I was just trying to, like, poke at her um, in that, but this is, this is not a, uh, a, a disrespectful thing when, when Jesus is saying it. With me, 
It's just more of, I'm just trying to push that button. But um, we know this because of his other interactions that he's had with different ladies. Mary Magdalene, after uh, his resurrection, he says, woman. And his mother, again, when he's on the cross, he entrusts John with his mother and says, uh, uh, says the same thing. Also in Mark chapter 15, verse 28, and John 4, 21, he says the same thing. He says, what, what have I to do with you? And we, we would think that this is, you know, he's along the lines of, of having this, atti- you know, like almost having like an attitude with it. But it's more of concern than anything else. He says, what have I have to do with you? And this is more of the fact that, that it's showing an opposition of two separate ideas. Because what we're going to see in the next verse, two separate ideas, two, two different plans, two different agendas. Because he says his hour has not yet come. His hour hasn't come yet. His time has not come. Which basically means to do what you are asking me to do. He's basically saying, he's like, you're asking me to do something, but you know what? It's not time yet. This is what one of the commentators, uh, Adam Clark, had said of this. He says, my time for working a miracle has not yet fully come. What I do, I do when necessary and not before. This would be characterized as God's timing. God doesn't do it just because we think it's important right at that moment. He's not moved because of the fact that we're like, oh, he has to do it now, he has to do it now. No, he does it when it's necessary and not before, and not after. God's time is perfect. He will do it when he's ready to do it. That's one of the things that we need to realize, is that we often sit there and think, and we, we will cry and, and, and everything else, which is, I'm not saying don't, don't pray over it or anything else. I'm saying that God will answer it in his perfect timing. And when it's necessary. Verse 5, his mother said unto the servants, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. Do it. Plain and simple. Has there ever been a time where you've asked maybe your kids or your parents have asked you to do something or whatever, where they, just, they wanted you to do a chore, and their only answer was, do it, or just do it. And then if it got more emphatic, just do it now, which you knew at that moment if it was a just do it now kind of a thing, you better do it or else your life is going to be short. I'm just telling you right then and there. But uh, his, his mom comes out and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Just whatever it is, do it. Don't even question it, just do it. Just do it. Shouldn't this be true of every believer in Christ, that whatsoever he says you to do, that you go ahead and do it? Shouldn't that be the way that it is? There shouldn't be a conversation of back and forth like, oh, Jesus, I believe, you know, and we try and like wiggle our way out of it or, or say, God, that you don't quite understand. You don't know what you're doing. Just do it. And I'm not saying that I'm impervious to this because there's, when we first, when we first started to, you know, when the Lord said, you're going to move on from youth ministry to be a you know, pastor of a church, There was that area, and they were like, Lord, we love youth ministry. We enjoy it. We don't want to move away from it. Are you sure about this? Is there... 
and we just, you know, um, my wife and I, we just said, she's got to do it. And I'll tell you, it's been a blast. We've, we've, had, we've had fun doing that. We have fun doing this. As much as we you know, missed youth and, uh, and doing that, it, it's been a blast. And the uh, illustration that when, when you say yes, when you just do it, things tend to move quickly. When you're obedient, things move quickly. What do I mean? Let's go back to this. Let's go back to the fact of us uh, saying yes to the Lord and being, uh, becoming the pastors of this church. We put out our resume. I believe it was on a Thursday. By Monday, we had a phone call from this church. And this church wanted, you know, kept on asking us, and the next week they said, hey, can we do a FaceTime thing with you and all that? And then they said, hey, what about next month you come visit us? Now, if, if you've ever been, you know, if you've ever been, like, as far as pastors-wise, pastors will say that it, the whole process probably takes about a year, year and a half for a church to say yes to a certain pastor. All right? Next month, they said, hey, we want to meet you. you uh, we we want to... We, you know, we like to talk with you, so, so we did. And then they said, you know what? If you would, would you come down and, and, and preach the service? Which basically means that if you're preaching a service, they're voting on you whether or not you want to be the pastor of that church or not. This was about a month, you know, about a month or so into the whole process. So it's moving pretty quickly. We got here, and the uh, church voted us in. They said, hey, do you want to do this? I said, yes. They said, What's, what's keeping you from coming, like, right now? And I said, oh, well, we had to sell our house. And the market's not good where we're at. I live in Illinois where they tax you for everything. That's where we lived. And so nobody wants to move to Illinois because they don't want to get taxed for everything. And so I said, well, I said, it's going to take a miracle for us to, to, to move as quickly as you wanted to. They wanted us to, to be here before school started. I said, okay, we're going to put our house on the market. We're, we're going to go back and we're going to do everything else. Our house sold two hours before it was on the market. So when you finally say yes and be obedient to what the Lord has for you, he will move quickly. We got here uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of August, right when school was starting. So God moves. When you finally say yes and you're obedient to what God has for you, God moves quickly. God moves quickly in that. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I know this fairly well because when the Lord first called me to, to ministry, I said, Lord, I'll just keep on going on to be an architect. I can, I can bless those. I'll go on missions trips. I'll, I'll, I'll be able to make you know, quite a bit of money, and I'll be able to give those to missionaries that need it and pastors and everything else. I'll be able to and you start you know, giving your whole thing. You start going through that. What was I doing? I was trying to give him a sacrifice as opposed to actually being obedient and saying, Lord, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this and it'll be good. And he says, I, I, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be obedient to what I asked you to do. And I said, okay, Lord. Have you ever noticed that, that if you want God to do something or you're asking God or you're, you're desiring to see God do something extraordinary in your life, he wants your obedience first. He wants you to do what he asks you to do. We want God to, to answer it first and then be obedient. Okay, God, I see what you did there. Okay, now I'll be obedient. No, God wants us to be obedient first and then he does the extraordinary. 
Then he does that miracle. Then he does. It's all that step of faith that we need to take. As Mary said, do it. Do it. We look at Noah. Noah is asked to build an ark because it's going to rain and it's going to flood. And he doesn't see this happening. He doesn't see a cloud. He doesn't see any of this stuff happening. And he just sees everything going on as, as usual. They say, I guess it's, you know, right around 300 years he's like building this thing, if I have that right. I could be wrong on that. He goes ahead and he builds the ark. He gets everything inside. God shuts the door, then what happens? The rain comes. And then the floods come. God wants us to step out in obedience. You don't think that during that time period where he's building this thing, that people are walking by making fun of him? Saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's no boat. What do you need a boat for? Or Moses. If Moses is on, the, you know, on that hillside and he's not praying, he's not praying for, for those down uh, in the valley fighting with Aaron and her. What happens? When he's obedient and his hands are raised and they're, uh, and they're helping him out, they're winning the battle. His arms fall because he begins to get tired. He begins to lose. But when he's obedient and he gets his hands up there with Aaron and her, Everything, you know, seems to be working well. How did it work out for Jonah? Jonah was disobedient. He was flat out disobedient. The Lord told him to go speak to the people of Nineveh. What did he do? He ran the opposite direction. And if you've ever been outside of God's will, you know that it's the worst possible place you could ever be. I had this happen when I went to CBC the first time. I left after a month, Central Bible College called to be a pastor where the Lord would have me to go, left. It was the most miserable year and a half, two years that I had ever spent because I was outside of God's will. But when I finally determined to say, I'm going to do God's will no matter what, I'm going to go, it was, it was a tremendous blessing. Jonah, when he finally, finally gives in and says, okay, Lord, I'm going to do what you, you know, the way that you want to do it, What happens? The Ninevites come to, uh, come to the Lord. And he's still not happy. Sometimes you have people, you know, that will actually have their prayers answered and still be mad about it. You ever think about that? That God wants something, you go ahead and do it, and you can still be mad about it? I mean, think about those things. Verse 6 and 7 says this, And there were, uh, there were set there six water pots, of water. And after the manner of, of purifying the Jews, containing two or three farkens apiece, Jesus said, uh, said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I like how descriptive that is. It wasn't like, you know, they just filled it up just a little bit. It says, Fill them up to the brim. So they're, they're all the way to the top. For those that don't know, a, a farkin is a measurement, it, it's about seven to eight gallons. It can hold about seven or eight gallons. So it's possibly anywhere from 84 gallons to 144 gallons that's in here. And so far, Jesus has, has yet to say anything. He hasn't said, hey, watch this. I'm about ready to turn this water into wine. Watch this. He doesn't say that. He, said, he just says, go fill up the water. Go fill up those water pots with, you know, with water, and they fill them up to the brim. He doesn't mention it. doesn't say any kind of miracle is going to take place. Maybe they thought, you know, hey, well, at least we'll have water. I don't know. But you ever notice that instruction and obedience go hand in hand and is required? 
When God gives the instruction, he expects you to be obedient in it. And it says, and they filled, it, uh, filled them up to the brim. Not only were they obedient, they filled up to the brim. They said, you know, it's kind of like, okay, they told us to do it. We're going to do it well. All right, we're going to fill it all the way to the tip top. Verses 8 through 10. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not where it was, where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast came, uh, called the bridegroom, or the husband. And he said unto them, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is uh, worst, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now I want to look at this. First of all, First of all, the result brought about which was that which was good. The result, when our obedience, when we're obedient to the instruction that we have, the result is always going to bring about good. It's always going to bring about good. But I want to look at, look at this and see at verse 10, where it's on the screen. This is where people will sit there and they will go, Oh, praise the Lord, I can drink. I can go get drunk. Because, you know what, hey, I'm in Christ. I love Jesus. Amen. Pass me another beer. Hallelujah. But nowhere in there at all. Only thing it says, it says, when the men have well drunk. That means that when they were satisfied, that when they were done, they, didn't, they weren't thirsty anymore. That's all, it, that's all it says. It says, and when the men well drunk. It doesn't say the men got drunk. Nowhere in there does it say that. I think in our American mindset that we have this mentality that when we hear the word wine, or especially good wine, we automatically assume that it's alcoholic. Because if we say wine nowadays, or alcohol, or, or beer, or whatever, oh, it's got to be. We, we, we couple wine, beer, moonshine, whatever, all with being alcoholic, right? But nowhere in here does it say it. And the scriptures don't even say that it was alcoholic. Americans automatically assume because wine is mentioned and that there's a wedding happening and a feast happening that there must have been some sort of drunken party that was going on. Woo! Seven, eight days of partying. But the only thing that it says is when men had, have well drunk, meaning that they had their fill. Adam Clark said it this way, that which our Lord now being made uh, uh, now made being perfectly pure and highly of high nutrition. So I don't know if you guys know this, but grape juice is actually nu- very nutritious for you. It's very, has got a lot of antioxidants and everything else. A lot of people want you to believe, oh, I've got to drink wine in order to get the antioxidants. No, you don't. No, you don't. Furthermore, uh, Adam, uh, Adam uh, sorry, Albert Barnes said this, furthermore, the word translated well drunk could not be, uh, could, cannot be shown to mean intoxication, but it, it may mean when they had drunk as much as they judged proper or as they desired. And here's a question that we have to ask. Why would Jesus participate in getting others drunk and contradict himself? Because his word says that we are to be sober-minded or that we are to be sober 
I'm sorry, if you have alcohol, you're not going to be sober. You're not going to be clear-minded, clear-thinking. You're not going to be. You say, well, if I just have a little bit. How much, how much medicine or even drugs or anything else do you have to have for you to be affected by it? You say, I don't know. Why would you want to find out? Titus chapter 2, verse 6 says, Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. Titus 2, 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Those all three go together. If we want to be righteous, godly, and denying the unworldly things and the lusts of the world, we are to what? Live soberly. Titus 2, 2, that the aged men be sober. So some say, oh, well, the other one said young men. This one says aged men. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's another thought for you to have, even in the... Uh, you know, in our mindset is, is that nowhere in there did it say that those containers, those vessels were actually full of wine. It only said when they drew it out, it became wine. That it was wine. There's nothing in there. So the thing is, they could have had a couple glassfuls and been, you know, fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to sit there and, and say that it was or it wasn't, but that's a question that we also have to look. And nowhere in this text at all does it imply that the guests were intoxicated or even imply it. It doesn't even show it. Do you even you know, hear on there that the people are running around and, you know, puking over each other and everything else? No. The Bible, when it refers to new wine and good wine, they are freshly pressed juice. All right? Pure grape juice. Old wine is fermented. And fermentation takes time. That's why it's considered to be old wine. Our, our mindset, our American mindset, is that we see wine and automatically we, we assume something. But we need to look at what Scripture says and how it's shown throughout Scripture. When it talks about old wine, and what does it say? It says that wine is a mocker, that strong drink, you know, that all these things are horrible for you. So why would God sit there and tell you? And as recent studies have shown medically, medically, that alcohol is actually poisonous to your body. Why would Jesus make something and then say, here, go poison yourself? Because, you know, obviously he's given support to this marriage because he showed up to it. All right. That's it. I'm done on that. Back to the important issue that's in this portion of Scripture. Because you know what? The important issue in this Scripture is not about whether it's okay to drink as a Christian and, and still be saved. Let's go back to what we've recapped. Mary did know who Jesus was. Jesus supports biblical marriage between a man and a woman. The obedience of his servants. And we're about to see is the strengthening of his disciples, the strengthening of their faith by his disciples. Verse 11 and 12 says this, 
This beginning, uh, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his, his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Now, what's interesting in there, if you look at it, it says his mother and his brethren and his disciples. You know that Jesus has half-brothers and sisters, don't you? The Catholic Church doesn't want you to believe that. They believe that Jesus was all by himself and that, that Mary never had any children. That Once she gave birth to Jesus, that was it. But this even says right here, it says his mother and his brethren and his disciples. Other parts we know that uh, it even talks about, it says, who is my mother and my brother? We know that Jesus has other family. He has other siblings. They are half-brothers, they are half-sisters, but they are still family. And what does it say in there? It says, and his disciples believed on him. They already believed on him in, verse one, in chapter 1. We already know that. What it means is that their faith was strengthened, even more so. That it was strengthened and it was deepened. Why? Because his glory was manifested. Nothing about this. You don't see Jesus going, hey, come over here. Watch this. I'm about to do something. Watch this. I got nothing up my sleeves, guys. Watch this. Like he's some sort of magician. He doesn't do that. This is not like pre, you know, pre-prepared. He doesn't, he doesn't sit there and go, hey, guys, fill those really quickly with wine. I'm going to tell everybody it's water and watch this. All right, guys, go. Do a little sleight of hand trick. No, he doesn't. His glory was manifested because there was a need sawn, and you know what? It was met by him, and only by him, and the only way that it could be met. I don't know about you, but when's the last time that you've taken a glass of water, prayed over it, and it turned into grape juice? If it has, I want to come over and see it, all right? Just... But we see, that, like I said, when we only seek him and his glory. Those around us, and even ourselves, our faith will become solidified. Some you know, already doubt, but the thing is, is that how much can you keep on doubting when you keep on seeing miracles happen in people's lives? You almost have to put your head in the sand in order to figure out, in order to say, that didn't happen, that's not real, God's not real. You're solidifying your faith because how many times have you seen you know, things happen in somebody's life and it only caused your faith to deepen? Sometimes you get the mentality of saying, well, Jesus, well, you did it for them. Why didn't you do it for me? Why don't you do it for me? You like me better than them. I have a, a, a little coaster on my desk that says, um, you know, God loves you, but I'm his favorite. I had a friend of mine give that to me. He just he put that on. And sometimes that's the mindset and mentality that we have is, is that we think that we're God's favorite. And that instead of rejoicing with an answer to prayer, we get mad about it and say, well, God, why don't you do it for me? I'm better than them. I pray five hours a day. I knew this. Why don't you worry about your own faith? And let, and let, the, let the answered prayers that somebody else has solidify your faith because you know that God is a miracle-working God. In this, the opposite is, is, true, uh, is true as well. 
if we are seeking all, uh, the approval of those around us, if we are seeking the approval of our friends and our family and those around us, even those that don't matter, because I don't know about you, but when I was in high school or even in junior high, I tried to get the approval of the popular crowd so I could be popular along with them, even though they, they didn't want anything to do with me. And it's a never-ending process, and you sit there and go, why don't they like me? You know what? If they don't like you now, they're not going to like you when you're, you're popular either. They're going to throw you to the curb as soon as you do something that they don't like. Anyways, if you are seeking the approval of those around you and the attention is focused all on you, our faith in Jesus Christ is weak, is weakened, or even non-existent, meaning that you're not saved at all. We are basically Christians in word only, by title only. I know this because, you know, I think I shared the, you know, the story for, I was going to church for eight months before I got saved, but I was telling everybody that I was saved and that I was a Christian. Well, actually, I wasn't saved, I didn't say I was saved, I just said I'm a Christian. But you know, there's a whole different thing, there's a whole different thing about it when you actually believe who Jesus is, and you actually get, and you actually are saved by the Lord. It's not just by word only, because you can sit there and look at the person's life and see whether or not they're saved. It's a matter of how they, how they live their lives. What does their fruit show forth? Is it only present on Sunday morning that they all of a sudden are a Christian, or is it actually the other six days of the week? What I want, the reason why I want to tell you that because Jesus gives us very, very fearful words in the Gospel of Mar- uh, Matthew, chapter 7, starting at verse 21 through 23, that says this. Not everyone that, say, that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of God, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have cast out devils. And in your name, done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. These are those that only, in in word only, that don't trust in Jesus. And the thing is that some people say, well, if I'm a weak Christian, that means I'm still a Christian. Why would you want to keep on getting close to being walking away from the faith? I'm sorry that if a person has been saved for 30, 40 years, even five years, there should be some sort of change. There should be a strengthening. There should be a fact that you, that you trust God more than you did on day one. And I see a lot of different ones going around saying that they're saved. And they say, oh, I've been saved, Pastor, 30 years, 40 years. And they're the same person that they were 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Nothing has changed in them. Their prayer life hasn't deepened. Their Bible reading hasn't deepened. Nothing has deepened in their life at all. I'm sorry, but the Bible says that, you know what? And this is a very, uh, in the book of Hebrews where he says, you should be on spiritual meat right now. But basically, since you want to sit there and and not do anything about it, you're still on milk. 
we have some 40-year-old believers in Christ that are still sucking on a bottle. What is a baby? Is a baby strong or weak? They're weak. And for some of us in this room, it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to grow up and get on the meat of God's word, of what God says and what he intended, so that way we don't have to worry about Jesus saying, depart from me, for I never knew you, you that work iniquity. God wants us to, to be deepened in that relationship. He doesn't want you just to kind of walk by and be like, hey, yeah, oh, yeah, that's my acquaintance, Jesus, yeah. No, he wants to actually know everything in your life. He wants to know who you are. He wants to do everything in and through you. Why? Because he wants you to, uh, he wants you to depend upon him. Because he wants your faith, your obedient faith and the instructions that he has given he gave us instructions you go that's a big book to read don't give me that because you know what you all sit on there you know, some of you sit online reading about the kardashians and and all sort of stuff and go oh my god i can't believe that kim did that oh oh kanye west who cares who cares this is your instruction he says be obedient to that There's some names out there I have no idea. You know, you know, some of these people coming out there with these names, got whatever, I'm going, I don't even know who you are anymore. I don't even know who these people are. And then you have some, you know, some person that's all you know, washed up, has been, that says, okay, I'm going to go get a facelift so that way I look like I'm like 30. Actually look like, they're more like a corpse because their face is all sucked in. And they go, I'm going to be popular again because I'm going to go out there and do all this immoral stuff so I can get back in, you know, in the limelight. God gave us the instruction. He wants you to be obedient to it. Why? Because that way he can do the extraordinary through you. But some of us are not even reading the instructions. What's that, old, uh, what's that acronym? What does the Bible mean? Basic instructions before leaving earth? It's not, you're like, well, that's kind of dumb. Well, you know what? It's your instruction book. We need to, to do his will. What is, it, what is his will? The Bible says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Tell people about him. That's his will. We make it this big, huge you know, ordeal of saying, oh, I got to find the right thing to do, and I got to do this because it's the will of God. No, the will of God is for you to say, uh, see people saved, for you to tell people about Jesus. That's the will of God for you. You have one job, one business in this world, and that is to see soul saved. That's paraphrased from John Wesley. You have one job, one business, and that is to, to save souls. If Jesus had the, had the mission statement of to seek and to save that which is lost, then why do you think that you're above it? We want excuses. Oftentimes. What do you mean? Well, Lord, you know, the Lord hasn't shown from heaven and he hasn't said, get this perfect job over here. And he hasn't said, go do this. And he hasn't told me to do this. Get off the couch. Do what God's called you to do. Maybe provide for your family. That's a good thing. And while you work, tell people about Jesus. In the words of Mary, do it. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, do it. Just 
Do it. Don't sit there and, and try and reason with them and everything else and have these contemplations. Just do what he's asked you to do. 